Amen. Praise the Lord. Go ahead and stand with us again, if you would, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Let's go ahead and bump elbows with your neighbor. Let's touch and agree. Father, we come to, to you today, come before you, we ask. Lord, as we look at our society, we look at our lives, we look at uh, the state that our country's in, God, we pray, deliver us from evil. Uh, Lord, even that evil that we recognize is in our own hearts at times. So, Father, we pray, lead us not into temptation. God, we ask that you would give us in Christ the forgiveness of sin so that we can forgive others. And pray, Lord, today that you would open up the bread of your word. Feed us today the bread that we get here through the word of God. Strengthen us. Lord, guide us. We ask that your will be done in our lives as a result of time that we spend together today in your word. We ask it in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. Thank you. May be seated in the Lord's presence. If you have your Bible with you, turn to the book of Hosea chapter 1. And, you know, about halfway through the last service, I was thinking, you know, I decided to take us into the school of the prophets this summer, which is going to make it a... Hot summer for sure, and uh, you know, and I thought, man, uh, this is you know, Hosea's kind of got all of us on blast equally, and but then I thought, man, I can't back out of it now. I guess, I guess we're stuck. So here's here's Hosea, and you know, I do want to thank uh, both uh, Crystal Ramirez and also uh, Senior Chief. Richter for uh, aiding us with our uh, POW MIA table today. I think remembering the fallen is good, which is what we do on Memorial Day. Remembering their families, I think, is better. Remembering the children in particular, the most um, heart-breaking heart, uh, picture I think I see at this time of the year is uh, where the uh, young, young boy is getting the flag from his father's coffin that had been folded up and they're presenting it to him he's standing there he looks very brave and at the same time I've you know I've seen children about the same age uh, in the in that same moment that was the time they absolutely fall apart because there's something about that moment at that spot at the graveside and you know your loved one is in that casket and it's setting right over the grave and just fall apart and that doesn't mean that they are any less brave and I think we have an obligation to consider that especially as we look into the book of Hosea today because I feel like we got to preach the prophets in the spirit of the prophets and the spirit of Elijah is to turn the heart of the fathers to the children in order to avoid a curse. So Memorial Day, a time for us to remember those that have fallen in uniform after that full measure of service. At the same time as we look at ourselves, I think we can see that our society has clearly gone from having a fascination with serial killers and binge-watching psychotic thrillers to actually reproducing it in real life. And that is why God's Word and this church is your deliverance in this society and of your kids. When you talk about general, generational curses, there's nothing spooky about that. 
I mean, it's just a simple fact that if your grandparents were hippies and your parents didn't, didn't change course, well, then, then probably you're reaping all sorts of consequences mentally, psychologically, emotionally, socially, every other way. And we see that now in our own society. And so I wanted to enroll us in the School of the Prophets. They are credentialed professors. Uh, it is an accredited curriculum, and it delivers a great degree. But to put their courses in context, I want you to think about how these last 12 books of your Old Testament fit together as a unit, because these books are not in chronological order. In a King James Bible, they are in dispensational order. And so the first Three, Hosea, Joel, and Amos hang together, and then there's a break, and then the next six hang together, and then there's a break, and then the last three hang together, because the first three are written, as it were, from a pre-tribulation context, and they are recording God's warning to the Jews about, uh, well, yes, historically about the fact that uh, uh, as someone is going to come in and and conquer them and take them out of the land, but also about the coming time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation yet to come under the Antichrist. The next six books are written as if they were living in the midst of that time of tribulation. And so Obadiah through Zephaniah, and uh, well, the first three also, but especially those that give you the grainy detail of the entire events of Revelation 6 through chapter 19. The final books, Haggai through Malachi, are, I will say, post-tribulation books because they're written as if tribulations ended with the second coming of Christ and now they are rebuilding things in the land. So that's kind of the syllabus on these 12 minor prophets and how they outline themselves into three doctrinal sections, pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, post-tribulation. You know, that is so important for us today because here is my thesis for our study. If you as a Christian are ignorant of the teaching of the minor prophets, you are ignorant of your part in God's plan for the second coming. So you've got to develop more than just an academic curiosity about these prophets, more than just a passing interest in the prophetic, because if you are a Bible believer today in our society, to believe is to be buffeted, to minister God's word is to be mocked, to disciple someone or be a disciple is to be despised. So I want you to be warned up front that hard prophets can only accurately be represented by hard preaching. Now again, Hosea is putting us all on blast equally. So don't take it personally unless it applies to you. And while, I, while I've got to speak truth to power in politics from this pulpit and, and do so from time to time, I still have to be willing to speak truth to our personal preferences in society. So I'm just warning you in advance, this particular study is rated R. It is rated R for keeping it real. Turn to your neighbor and say real. This is rated R. We're going to keep it real today because here's our first point for study. We've become the nation that Hosea was crying against. Now I'll prove that to you as we go through, but... 
I mean, you have to admit, our spirit is willing, but our flesh is working for the weekend. Hello, somebody. So Hosea is crying out against us. Will you listen? Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So three books start off these 12, Hosea, Joel, and Amos. The first one, the third one are dated, and both are written at the same time. This verse lists the kings in the southern kingdom of Judah, and then the king that Hosea prophesies against in the northern ten tribes. So let me, let me back up the backstory so that you know exactly where to put this. Because David's kingdom was split by civil war in 975 BC after Solomon died. The prophets then minister after that to usually either one nation or the other, the northern ten tribes or the southern two. And that lasts until the Assyrian invasion of 722 BC when they deport the northern kingdom. Hosea here is a prophet to that northern kingdom, those ten tribes. They are collectively called Israel or Ephraim after the largest tribe or sometimes Samaria after their capital city. So Israel had Samaria. Judah retained Jerusalem in the temple. Hosea's name means God saves. That was the name given to Joshua. And he foretells events taking place at the fall of Israel and the capital of Samaria as a picture in Bible type of the coming tribulation. You know, in their entire 253-year history, their kingdom through 19 different monarchs never had one godly king. But let me point you to three specific areas so that you are not vague. Number one, politically, it was a world of polarization. And that is what is happening in America right now. And since this is the first prophet to speak after Daniel drops the mic and walks away, verse 2 says, the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord." So things are even worse morally and spiritually than they are politically. I mean, that time, this time frame from Jeroboam II down to the captivity is the last lap of iniquity in Israel's downward spiral. So God says, look, Hosea, I'm going to give them one more last chance. I mean, I'm going to give them the best, uh, the, the best picture I can muster. And so I want you to be like the prophet Ezekiel. Your life is going to be like Ezekiel's, Ezekiel 12, verses 4 to 7. I'm going to make you an object lesson for the people that I want to listen to you. And therefore, he is commanded to marry a whore. Verse 3, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. So Gomer begets children of whoredoms in order to prove that the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. So the first child is said to be Hosea's, the other two are not. Verse 4, and the Lord said unto him, call his name Jezreel. 
for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now, the name Jezreel means scatters because God is getting, he's getting ready to disperse those 10 tribes into captivity. And I need you to know that if you do not make the right choice at Jezreel, at the battle of Armageddon, then you put yourself beyond my mercy, God says. But I need you to know, because Paul says in Ephesians 5 that there is an evil day. If you do not make the right choice in your evil day, you risk putting yourself beyond God's mercy. Love cannot love iniquity and idolatry because that type of wickedness precludes love. So number two, socially, it was a world of compromise and corruption. You know, men and women today want a God that can tolerate anything that they can tolerate, and they can tolerate a whole lot. You know what I'm saying? Uh, So the God of the Bible is a misfit to our modern, postmodern society. Verse 6, and she conceived again and bare a daughter. And God said unto him, call her name Lo Ruhamah. Lo means no in Hebrew. For I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. So he's told to name the second born not beloved or not pitied because God is cutting off his mercy after 253 years from the northern 10 tribes. You say, Alan, you know, that sounds like a contradiction. I thought that Psalm 136 says God's mercy endures forever. Well, it, it does because it's available to you right now. I mean, it's endured all the way down to today. And the conditions for getting God's everlasting mercy are clearly stated in Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 and Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. But if you reject that offer this morning then his mercy continues, but you do not. Number three, religiously, it was a world of idolatry and immorality. Verse eight, now when she had weaned Lo Ruhama, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, call his name Lo Ami, for you are not my people and I will not be your God. Now that's the third step. Making wrong choices leads to losing God's love. Losing God's love means he cannot act toward you as heavenly father. You have not just grieved the spirit, you have quenched him. So the third child, Hosea, disowns outright and names him not my people. Now that condition perfectly describes the, the uh, state of the 10 northern tribes. They were sown in a promised land, but they're going to be scattered according to promised curses, verses 3 to 6. They had access to God's enduring mercy, but they're now going to be cut off, verse 6. They were God's people, that, but they're going to become the 10 lost tribes, verses 8 and 9. So a whole, whole scene is set now for Hosea's ministry. He's going to preach to a nation that is married to the Lord, but is stepping out on him. Israel is a wife, and God is announcing her divorce. You know, there's so much more because contrary to what most evangelicals say today, Israel will be re- reunited with Judah, reconciled to God, and remarried to her husband at the last days, Ezekiel 37, 19, and Isaiah 54, 5. But now wait, 
because I need you to watch the multivalent nature of Bible prophecy. And you've got to notice this. We're going to see it over and over and over again in the school of the minor prophets because the Bible being multivalent means it has multiple simultaneous applications. So between verses 9 and 10, there's a complete about face. From the darkest picture of defeat, his revelation now runs centuries ahead in order to draw your attention to the brightest picture of love and mercy and restoration of the Jews. So verses 10 and 11 will be fulfilled at the end of Daniel's 70th week. Look at verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, in the valley of Jezreel, there it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God, after the battle of Armageddon. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, the son of David, Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel, the battle of Armageddon, the day of the Lord. Great shall be its results, great shall be its outcomes. And I want you to notice that Paul appropriates verse 10 for us because the Bible is multivalent. And that is why I say, Hosea is preaching at you. Paul uses that verse as proof that some Gentiles will also be called God's people. So Hosea is speaking to us. So you need to start taking note in the school of the minor prophets about how many verses deal prophetically with tribulation saints often have a double fulfillment what we might call an inspirational application for church-age saints that are Gentiles. Now go to chapter 2. We see Hosea's world, but what was his life like? I mean, this is what I think makes this prophecy so compelling because the first three chapters are just an illustration of the last 11 chapters of this book. So chapter 1 is on the signs that God gives Israel through Hosea's children. Chapter 2 is on the backsliding of Israel, illustrated in Hosea's wife. Chapter 3 is on the redemption provided through Hosea, the husband. So chapter 1 is about marriage, and their rebellion is reprised in chapters 4 to 8. Chapter 2 is about divorce. (coughs) That ruin is reprised in chapters 9 and 10. Chapter 3 is about remarriage, and their return is reprised in chapters 11 to 14. So we've got a great book in the book of Hosea. I mean, if you want to allegorize anything, allegorize that. Because isn't this a metaphor for where we are at right now? Our land departed from the Lord in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. You know, it was real easy in World War II. They say that there are no atheists in foxholes. A lot of churches started. A lot of revivals going on. on. A, lot of, a lot of people got saved, you know, during that period of time. But, but wow, that didn't last long. 50s, 60s, and 70s were gone. And then evangelical Christianity departed from the words of the living God in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And now today, churches are as tolerant of wickedness as this world is. Hello, somebody. 
So chapter 2, verse 1, and yet chapter 2, verse 1 says, Say ye unto your brethren, Ami, and to your sisters, Ruhama, Hosea, go to the men of this nation and call them my people. Go to the women of Israel and refer to them as pitied. Tell, tell them to call each other by the name that they will wear after I restore them, but they must plead with their mother, verse 2, which represents the national leaders. Because just like in Jesus' day, I mean, Jesus had multitudes that followed him. I mean, that whole crowd that supported him uh, on Palm Sunday when he entered Jerusalem. But Gomer represents the nation's leaders, and they never accepted the authority of Jesus as the Word, capital W. And they never really accepted biblical authority of God's words. So verse 2, plead with your mother. Plead, for she's not my wife, neither am I her husband. God writes Israel a bill of divorce on the grounds of adultery in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. Verse 6 says, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. So, so that wall that was meant to protect becomes your fenced-in pathway, and it prevents you from going in any other direction except to judgment. Verse 2, and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. And it is at this point that you need to say to yourself, like the Jewish remnant will say in the tribulation, verse 7, I will go and return to my first husband. I will get, I've lost my first love. I'm going to return. For then was it better with me than now. So the second and third chapters of Hosea are dispensational. Verse 2 here is, is the time from A.D. 70 to 1948, when God set aside his wife, and he's seeking a bride for his son Jesus. That bride is the church. And then beginning in verse 6, there's a description of the tribulation, where the father defends the saints, and he starts getting ready to be remarried to the children of the wife he divorced. And now verse 14 describes the middle of that seven-year period as God hides his people in the wilderness from the Antichrist. I mean, so really, this is one of the greatest prophecies in the entire Bible on the second coming of Christ. Watch, watch, look at verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. Now, doctrinally, the process of that prophecy is described in the book of Revelation. Look on your handout at Revelation 12, verse 14. And to the woman, this Jewish remnant, were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. That's a phrase that we saw repeatedly in the book of Daniel. That's the last three and a half years. And she's nourished from the face of the serpent, that is Satan, possessing the Antichrist. And then Israel repeats the events, the same events that she went through between Exodus 15, crossing the Red Sea in number, Numbers chapter 23, part of receiving God's mercy 
and that both burns out her desire for idolatry and purges out the rebels that are among her. Verse 15, and I will give her her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. Boy, it sure wasn't back in Joshua 7, but okay. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt, what we call the Song of Moses. So the valley of Achor was burned indelibly into Israel's memory by the sin of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. Uh, He had caused the defeat of Israel at Ai, and they stoned him in the valley of Achor. But now wait, the name Hosea is equivalent to the name Joshua, and Joshua is the Old Testament name for Jesus, and Joshua attacked a cursed city in Joshua 6, and Jesus comes back to attack a cursed city in Revelation 17 and 18. So this is our second point for study. God says to Israel and to you today, return to what I am comfortably speaking in my words. And I will give you victory over victimization. And I will turn your greatest defeat and your deepest shame into a doorway that opens on hope. The blessed hope. I mean, this process prepares Israel for the promised land of the millennium. And this process prepares your soul for its purpose, its place, and God's purpose in eternity. Because if you have a real Bible and you know it, then you remember how the term that day in verse 16 refers to the second advent. Look at it, verse 16. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, my man, my husband, Isaiah 54, 5, and shall call me no more Baali, the name of that heathen God, which means master. So the spell is finally broken. The bondage is finally over. So in verse 19, God gets remarried. But you know, Hosea's story is not yet over because Hosea also gets married a second time. Now he's already pictured God, but now he's going to picture Jesus. Watch chapter 3 and verse 1. Then said the Lord unto me, go yet, go again, go get a second wife. But this time, I want you to love a woman, beloved of a friend, yet an adulteress. So Hosea chapter 3 verse 4 is the perfect picture of Israel during this dispensation from AD 70 to today. But in this chapter, Hosea becomes a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners, finding a bride of his own in the church. Say, Alan, how so? Well, look at verse 2. So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver. And for an omer of barley and and half omer of barley. So Hosea's second wife pictures God displacing Israel to claim a bride for his son. Not replacing Israel, but displacing Israel until he takes us out at the beginning of Daniel's 70th week. Because in the Bible, silver is redemption money. Now, a bushel and a half of barley is worth another 15 pieces of silver. And 30 pieces of silver is what Judas got for betraying Jesus and delivering him up for your redemption on the cross. Matthew 26, 15. So then there's a break where verse 5 opens a portal into the millennium. Look at what it says. Afterward, 
shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Now, I've I've taken extra time with chapters 1 to 3 because now you're able to see the picture of chapters 4 to 14. Hosea gives three messages to the people based on the analogy of his own experience in these three chapters. So now let me pull out of this prophet what we need to learn today at his school. What do you have to do to return to him and get out of the mess that you are in? Chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And I could stop right there because I just gave you the answer. Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel, for the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land because there's no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land because all of that comes from the word of the Lord. I mean, hoop, there it is. The three-point outline of his next 11 lectures. No truth, chapters 4 to 8. No mercy, chapters 9 and 10. No knowledge of God, chapters 11 to 14. Verse 1, because there is no truth, that's relativism, nor mercy, that's pragmatism, nor knowledge of God, that is no biblical authority in the land. Well, then look what happens. By swearing and lying and killing and stealing and committing adultery, I mean, sounds like he's reading the nightly news. They break out and blood toucheth blood. Therefore shall the land mourn. Doesn't our land mourn? Every time there's a mass shooting, our our whole land mourns. Therefore doth our land mourn. Verse 11, whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. Well, that sounds like you last night at the club. I'm just saying. My people ask counsel at their stocks, their wooden yard Madonna, and their staff, their divining rod or their dimes or their applied kinesiology, declareth unto them, for the spirit of whoredoms, I mean, just check out contemplative spirituality and check out every psycho fad perpetuated in Christian books and Christian counseling because they have caused them to err and they have gone a whoring from under their God. So what? Well, here's what, verse 17. Ephraim's joined to his idols, let him alone. This nation isn't worth my time. So here's my death sentence, God says. Well, let me be kind and rewind so that you do not miss the root of the whole matter and therefore will not miss today the infallible solution. This is a good news message, it really is. My name is Hosea, I'm your deliverer. Verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. The reason for the sin, the reason for the judgment, the reason for the lack of love was, was not, having, not listening to the word of God, not having knowledge of God through his word. Malachi chapter 2 verse 7, there is on your handout. It says, for the priests, and I'm going to say by extension the pastor's lips should keep knowledge, and they, the flock, the people, should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But rots of ruck today, if you're going to find God's words from the King James Bible in, in hardly any pastor's mouths today, did I say that Hosea was preaching at us? Verse 6, 
because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee that thou shalt be no priest to me. Seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. Now that hurts. I mean, that is what hurts. Because the consequence is going to be in your kids. That is exactly what's happening today. So what is missing that is condemning and damning our children? Well, look at Psalm 119, verse 130. There on your handout. The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. I mean, the whole idea behind the modern translation movement is that you cannot actually talk about having God's words. In other words, having the certainty of the words of truth, like Proverbs 22, verses 20 and 21 say, but only, only say that in a King James Bible. I mean, you can't talk about having God's words. I mean, maybe we can give you an approximate message. After all, none of the original manuscripts match, and, you know, all of the texts and scholars are in competition, so you can't really get correct definitions of words, and you can't cross-reference, and, and since the modern translators cannot understand the meaning of the text they are translating, then they change it from what God gave us and deceive you about the context. Turn to chapter 5. I mean, it's not just that truth is relative and therefore they made a simple revision and because truth is relative, we've got to bring it up to date for the times. No, we have so deconstructed the Bible according to our delusion that we think the certainty of the rewards of truth no longer exists. We will believe anything except belief. We will believe anything except to actually have believing belief. Why? Because we are all good Romans. And we're just like, we become Pontius Pilate in, in John 18, verse 38. He asks, what is truth? And then walks out before Jesus can g- even give an answer. But, but Jesus does give an answer in John 17, 17. What is truth? It's God's word. And yet many pastors and many churches do not teach you the idea that we have the certainty of the words of truth in in our King James Bible. And so here are some of your glaring problems with having a lack of knowledge like that. Chapter 5, verse 4. They will not frame their doings to turn unto their God. For the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them. That's, that's the modern translation movement right there. And all the charismatic movements in all their various forms, they have not known the Lord. Go to chapter 6. You know, the other minor prophets, they're going to give us more pixels and a little finer rev- resolution on uh, prophetic events. But Hosea sets it off because he lays out the basic problem and the only fail-safe solution. Verse 4 of Hosea 5 is the reason for Israel's blindness then and the reason for the blindness of Christians in the latter times of the church age, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. And several salient things result when you fall for that mess. Look at Hosea 6, verse 4. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud. And as the early do, it goeth away. Number one, 
Because of discarding God's word, you are unstable. You know, I'm just saying the major malady of us Americans is we are bipolar. Everybody's bipolar today. And a a bipolar is just another word for instability. We are unstable. Turn to chapter 9. You're unstable theologically because there's no discipleship in most churches, meaning they are not grounded in worship, they are not grounded in the word, they're not grounded in fellowship of believers, and they're not grounded in ministry together. And so you are unstable personally. Why? Because uncertainty always results in instability. So the good you had from a true Bible decades ago, from a pure gospel and from a dispensational revival, well, that's all gone now, baby Baba. Chapter 9, verse 9. They have deeply corrupted themselves, as in the day of Gibeah. Therefore, he will remember their iniquity and will visit their sins. Well, that's number two. Because of instability, you are drawn into depravity. Turn to chapter 11. Let me open a window on the, this day of Gibeah. Let's, uh, let's go back and get the old VHS tape and bring it out and uh, put, it in the, you know, put it in the player, video player. Uh, Gibeah was the days of Judges 19 and 20. It was a day of no controlling legal authority when a Levite took his concubine to Gibeah and the men there wanted to sodomize the Levite and the man who was hosting the Levite as his guest offered them the Levite's concubine instead and his daughter and they so sexually abused the concubine that she died. The response of the Levite was to cut her body into 11 other pieces and send one to each of the other tribes, which led to a disastrous civil war. So really, we have everything in the days of Gibeah that you binge watch on Netflix, right? I mean, we've got immoral clergy, sex trafficking, abuse, murder, mafia tactics. I mean, this is breaking bad, So the days of Gibeah are upon us. The question is, what are you going to do? Will you acknowledge God's purpose for eternity for your own soul and follow it and then get that gospel good news to others of how to have everlasting life by believing on Jesus? And we got to call believers back to this. We got to call them back. I didn't move, they moved. I mean, I know it sounds odd today. I know you come into this church, particularly if you've gone to any other, if you've had any other church experience, you come into this church, you're like, well, what in the world is this? I mean, they believe they have God's words in English and the King James Bible. Hey, I didn't move, they moved. Chapter 11, verse 7, my people are bent to backsliding from me, though they called themselves to the most, they called them to the most high, So preachers, whatever good preachers were left or good priests who were teaching or or prophets like Hosea called him to the Most High, none at all would exalt him, though. Number three, because of depravity, you backslide continually. Turn to chapter 13. As the sapling is bent, the tree must grow. And our society, both national and Christian, has a predilection for not believing God's words. I mean, we'll believe anything, 
accept belief. We have a stubborn, skeptical unbelief. This is hard preaching from a hard prophet, but I am calling you to the Most High today, but is it going to do you any good? Will you not exalt the Lord above yourself? Will you not put what God says above what you think? Will you not put what he wants above what you want? Will you not magnify his word, even above all his name? Psalm 138, verse 2. Number four, because you are bent to backslide, you idolize man's word. Look at verse 2, Hosea 13. And now they sin more and more and have made themselves molten images of their silver and idols according to their own understanding. That's according to man's words. All of the work, all of it, the work of craftsmen, they say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves, the the molten calves that we made, according to our own words. Now, since every other scholar gives you their interpretation, I'm going to give you my commentary. Every modern Bible translation idolizes human understanding. And now they sin more and more. I mean, more and more and more. And it's not, I mean, it used to just be certain publishers, but now it's whole denominations and they come up with their own translations and, 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 and none of them start with a faith-based view of scripture. Prove me wrong. Every one of them has an anti-supernatural bias. All of them are based on the idea of evolution applied to the text So they've made molten translations of their text according to how they understand it, their word. They all limit themselves to the author's original intent or what they understand of it or the hearer's original understanding or what they can make out of it now centuries later or to the original manuscripts which no longer exist. And that is an idol made according to human reasoning and human understanding. And yet it's the work of such craftsmen. I mean, they're craftsmen in original languages, cognate languages, research languages, and patristics. So we got to bow down. Can I just put you in your place today? I'm going to anyway. First letter A. Some of you were like Israel. You were found in love, but now you run. And you were redeemed by the blood of Jesus and the barley of the word of God was sown in your life. And you know, you may not have had a bushel and a half from a disciple-making church, but you had half. You used to be a discipler and now the ground is fallow. Your Bible is moldy. Your heart is as chilly as crust. But second, letter B, some of you are like Hosea. You've been wronged by others. I mean, these are the days of Gibeah, not Elijah. And you have been wounded or mistreated by a parent, a step-parent, a relative, a friend, or a spouse. And your greatest temptation is going to be to hatred and resentment that waits for revenge. So here is all I want out of today's session in the school of Hosea. I want you to be used of God like Hosea. That's all I want. I want you to be used of God regardless of cost. Now, in order to do that, he took his scars, he processed his hurt, he processed his emotions with God's word, and because he did that, it turned his scars into his life message. 
For those of you in the sandals of Hosea, I challenge you today to turn your life over to God's own words. And the school of the prophets, as you're going to see, is based on that one idea right there. The word of God will always do the work because the spirit of God answers to the word. Now, it could be that you slipped in here just looking for hope. I mean, you're just looking for a door of hope to open in your valley of trouble. That's what Achor means. Uh, Achan had troubled Israel and they stoned him in that, in that valley. They called it Achor because it was trouble, it was tribulation. All you need, what you're praying, what you're looking for is God to open a door of hope. So if you're tired of this world's violence and uncertainty, I want to tell you, Jesus is your Joshua and he specializes in attacking your curse and saving you. Saving you just like Rahab, the Gentile harlot, got saved. I mean, right there. Jesus, friend of sinners, he loves us. Even, even though we are what we are. And he'll save you today just by you trusting him personally to be your Hosea, to buy you out of bondage, to deliver you from the slave market of sin. My time is up. I thank you for yours. Every head bowed, every eye closed. God, there are people today who have run from you. And I pray that you'd give them a renewed commitment to their Bible. I pray that they'd walk in your spirit in spite of the filth in our society. And God, show us once again how your strength is made perfect in our own weakness. And I thank you for them, Lord. I thank you for those who are committed to the same truth that we are. They keep us from feeling so alone in this ministry. But Lord, I, thank, I especially thank you today for Jesus who heals and redeems. Lord, I can remember when Josh was still here and we had the POWMIA table and happened to have it just like in a week after he had had somebody under, who was under him when he was a battle captain in Italy who had come back, commit suicide. And Lord, that only happens because they believe there is no door of hope in their acor. And God, that's on us. We've got the truth and we got the gospel good news of how to be saved. Will you simply believe on Jesus for everlasting life today? I mean, the Bible may sound strange to you, but it's God's word for you. And if you want to be saved right now and promised eternal life, life after death. All you have to do is pray your heart to God, knowing that he hears. And you know that he hears because you're not praying to somebody that is dead. Jesus is alive. So just pray and say, God, save me today for Jesus' sake. I trust Jesus today for everlasting life. Hear Jesus, I give you my life. Put my soul into your purpose for eternity. 
Go ahead and stand if you would as we get ready for the praise team to send us out singing. And if you prayed and you trusted Jesus for eternal life today, please come up here to the front. Meet me or one of our personal workers we'll have at the front of the aisle. Come up here and let us know. You can come right now. You can come while we're singing or come, you know, as soon as we get done singing. I want to give you a copy of my book, Next Steps for New Believers. Um, You know, maybe you attend here. You think you need to be a member here. All right, come up and talk to us about it. Um, You know, maybe you're saved. You want to get baptized. Okay, we're going to do baptisms the Sunday after all church retreat. You know what? Maybe you just need prayer. You want someone to open that door of hope by praying over you or praying with you or praying for you. Come up here to the front. Let us catch us. Let one of us pray with you. Next Sunday, Lord willing, will be our final study on the single-minded life there in Ruth chapter 1. Be here and bring somebody that needs to hear the gospel good news. Praise team, send us out singing.